The Book of the Hopi, Part 1, Creation of the Four Worlds, The Myths, Tokpela, The First World. The first world was Tokpela, Endless Space. But first, they say, there was only the Creator, Taiwa. All else was endless space. There was no beginning and no end, no time, no shape, no life. Just an immeasurable void that had its beginning and end, time, shape, and life in the mind of Taiwa, the Creator. Then he, the infinite, conceived the finite. First he created Sotuk Nyang to make it manifest, saying to him, I have created you the first power and instrument as a person to carry out my plan for life in endless space. I am your uncle. You are my nephew. Go now and lay out these universes in proper order so they may work harmoniously with one another according to my plan. Sotuk Nang did as he was commanded. From endless space he gathered that which was to be manifest as solid substance, molded it into forms, and arranged them into nine universal kingdoms, one for Taiwa, the creator, one for himself, and seven universes for the life to come. Finishing this, Sotuk Nang went to Taiwa and asked, is this according to your plan? It's very good, said Taiwa. Now I want you to do the same thing with the waters. Place them on the surfaces of these universes so they will be divided equally among all and each. So, Sotuk Nyang gathered from endless space that which was to be manifest as the waters and placed them on the universes so that each would be half solid and half water. Going now to Taiwa, he said, I want you to see the work that I have done, if it pleases you. It is very good, said Taiwa. The next thing now is to put the forces of air into peaceful movement about all. <clears throat> this Sotong did. From endless space, he gathered that which was to be manifest as the airs made them into great forces and arranged them into gentle, ordered movements around each universe. Tawa was pleased. You have done a great work according to my plan, nephew. You have created the universes and made them manifest in solids, waters, and winds, and put them in their proper places. But your work is not yet finished. Now you must create life and its movement. To complete the four parts, to walk a chi of my universal plan. Spider Woman and the Twins. Sotuk Nang went to the universe wherein was that to be Tokpela, the first world. And out of it, he created her who was to remain on the earth and be his helper. Her name was Kok Yang Wuti, Spider Woman. When she awoke to life and received her name, she asked, Why am I here? Look about you, answered Sotuk Nyang. Here is this earth we have created. It has shape and substance, direction and time, a beginning and an end, but there is no life upon it. 
we see no joyful movement, we hear no joyful sound. What is life without sound and movement? So you have been given the power to help us create this life. You've been given the knowledge, wisdom, and love to bless all the beings you create. That's why you're here. Following his instructions, Spider-Woman took some earth, mixed it with tukvala, liquid from mouth, saliva, spit, and molded it into two beings which she covered, then with a cape made of white substance, which was the creative wisdom itself, and sang the creation song over them. When she uncovered them, the two beings, twins, sat up and asked, Who are we? What are we doing here? Or, why are we here? To the one on the right side, Spider-Woman said, You are Pok Ang Hoya. You are to help keep this world in order when life is put upon it. Go now around all the world and put your hands upon the earth so that it will become fully solidified. solidified. That is your duty. <clears throat> Spider-Woman then said to the twin on the left, You are Pelangawahoya, and you are to keep this world in order when life is put upon it. This is your duty now. Go about all the world and send out sound so that it may be heard throughout all the land. When this is heard, you will be known as Echo, for all sound echoes the Creator. Pokkang Hoya, traveling through the earth, solidified the higher reaches into great mountains. The lower reaches he made firm, but still pliable enough to be used by those beings to be placed upon it, and who would call it their mother. Palongahoya, traveling through the earth, sounded out his call as he was bidden. All the vibratory centers along the earth's axis, from pole to pole, resounded his call. The whole earth trembled. The universe quivered in time. The universe quivered in tune. But he made the whole world an instrument of sound, and sound an instrument for carrying messages resounding praise to the creator of all. This is your voice, uncle, Sotuk Nyang said to Taiwa. Everything is tuned to your sound. That's very good, said Taiwa. When they had accomplished their duties, Pokeng Hoya was sent to the north pole of the world axis and Pelongak Hoya to the south pole, where they were jointly commanded to keep the world properly rotating. Pokangahoya was also given the power to keep the earth in a stable form of solidness. Palangahoya was given the power to keep the air in gentle ordered movement and instructed to send out his call for good or for warning through the vibratory centers of the earth. These will be your duties in time to come, said Spider-Woman. She then created from the earth trees, bushes, plants, flowers, all kinds of seed bearers and nut bearers to clothe the earth, given to each a life and name. In the same manner, she created all kinds of birds and animals, molding them out of the earth, covering them with her white substance cape and singing over them. Then she placed to her right, some to her left 
others before and behind her, indicating how they should spread to all four corners of the earth to live. Sotuk Nang was happy, seeing how beautiful it all was. The land, the plants, the birds, the animals, and the power working through them all. Joyfully, he said to Taiwa, Come see what our world looks like now. It is very good, said Taiwa. It is ready now for human life, the final touch of my plan. So Spider Woman gathered earth, this time of four colors, yellow, red, white, and black, mixed them with chukvala, the spit, molded them, and covered them with her white substance cape, which was the creative wisdom itself. As before, she sang over them the creation song, and when she uncovered them, these forms were human beings in the image of Sotuk Nyang. Then she created four other beings after her own form. They were Wuti, female partners for the first four male beings. Then Spider Woman uncovered them. The forms came to life. This was at the time of the dark purple light. Koyang Nuktu, the first phase of the dawn of creation, which first reveals the mystery of man's creation. They soon awakened and began to move, but there was still a dampness on their foreheads and a soft spot on their heads. This was at the time of the yellow light, Sikang Nukwa, the second phase of the dawn of creation when the breath of life entered man. In a short time, the sun appeared above the horizon, drying the dampness on their foreheads and hardening the soft spot on their heads. This was the time of the red light, Talaova, the first phase of the dawn of creation, when man, finally fully formed and firmed, proudly faced his creator. That is the sun, said Spider-Woman. You are meeting your father, the creator, for the first time. You must always remember and observe these three phases of your creation. The time of the three lights, the dark purple, the yellow, and the red, reveal in turn the mystery, the breath of life, and warmth of love. These comprise the creator's plan of life. For you, as sung over you, in the song of creation. The song of creation. The dark purple light rises in the north. A yellow light rises in the east. Then we of the flowers of the earth come forth to receive a long life of joy. We call ourselves the butterfly maidens. Both male and female make their prayers to the east. Make the respectful sign to the sun, our creator. The sounds of bells ring through the air, making a joyful sound throughout the land. Their joyful echo resounding everywhere. Humbly, I ask my father, the perfect one, Taiwa, our father, the perfect one creating the beautiful life shown to us by the yellow light. Give us perfect light at the time of the red light. 
The perfect one laid out the perfect plan and gave us a long span of life, creating song to implant joy in life. On this path of happiness, we the butterfly maidens carry out his wishes by greeting our father son. The song resounds back from our creator with joy and we of the earth repeat it to our creator at the appearing of the yellow light. Repeats and repeats again the joyful echo, sounds and resounds for times to come. The first people of the first world did not answer her. They could not speak. Something had to be done. Since Spider-Woman received her power from Sotuk Nyang, she had to call him and ask him what to do. So she called Palangwahoya and said, call your uncle. We need him at once. Palangahoya, the echo twin, sent out his call along the world axis to the vibratory centers of the earth, which resounded his message throughout all the universe. Sotuk Nyang, our uncle, come at once. We need you. All at once, with the sound of a mighty wind, Sotuk Nyang appeared in front of them. I'm here. What do you need me so urgently for? Spider-Woman explained, as you commanded me, I have created these first people, and they are fully and firmly formed. They are properly colored. They have life, and they have movement, but they can't talk. That's the proper thing they lack, so I want you to give them speech. Also, the wisdom and the power to reproduce so that they may enjoy their life and give thanks to the Creator. So, Sotuk Nyang gave them speech a different language to each color with respect for each other's difference. He gave them the wisdom and the power to reproduce and multiply. Then he said to them, With all these I have given you this world to live on and to be happy. There is only one thing I ask of you, to respect the Creator at all times. Wisdom, harmony, and respect for the love of the Creator who made you. May it grow and never be forgotten among you as long as you live. So the first people went their directions, were happy, and began to multiply. The Nature of Man With the pristine wisdom granted them and understood that the earth was a living entity like themselves, she was their mother, they were made from her flesh, they suckled at her breast. For her milk was the grass upon which all the animals grazed and the corn which had been created specially to supply food for mankind. But the corn plant was also a living entity with a body similar to man's in many respects, and the people built its flesh into their own. Hence, corn was also their mother. Thus, they knew their mother in two aspects, which were often synonymous as Mother Earth and the Corn Mother, the personification of the same two identical aspects, the Aztecs called Tonantzin, which means our mother. The Spaniards later called her in the Christian church the Virgin of Guadalupe, still the Christian patroness of all of Indian America. <clears throat> but the corn plant was also a living entity with a body similar to man's in many respects. Okay. In their wisdom, they also knew their father in two aspects. 
He was the sun, the solar god of their universe. Not until he first appeared to them at the time of the red light, Talava, had they been fully firmed and formed. Yet his was but the face through which looked Taiwa, their creator. These universal entities were their real parents, their human parents being the instruments through which their power was made manifest. In modern times, their descendants remembered this. When a child was born, his corn mother was placed beside him where it was kept for 20 days, and during this period, he was kept in darkness. For while his newborn body was of this world, he was still under the protection of his universal parents. So that if the child was born at night, four lions were painted with cornmeal on each of the four walls and ceiling early next morning. If he was born during the day, the lines were painted the following morning. The lines signified that a spiritual home, as well as a temporal home, had been prepared for him on earth. On the first day, the child was washed with water in, the, in which cedar had been brewed. Fine white cornmeal was then rubbed over his body and left all day. Next day, the child was cleaned and cedar ashes were rubbed over him to remove the hair and baby skin. This was repeated for three days. From the fifth day until the twentieth day, he was washed and rubbed with cornmeal for one day and covered with ashes for four days. Meanwhile, the child's mother drank a little of the cedar water each day. On the fifth day, the hair of both child and mother was washed, and one cornmeal line was scraped off each wall and ceiling. These scrapings were then taken to the shrine where the umbilical cord had been deposited. Each fifth day thereafter, another line of cornmeal was removed from the walls and ceiling and taken to the shrine. For 19 days now, the, horse, the house had been kept in darkness so that the child had not seen any light. Early on the morning of the 20th day, while it was still dark, all the aunts of the child arrived at the house, each carrying a corn mother in her right hand and each wishing to be the child's grandmother. First, the child was bathed. Then the mother, holding the child in her left hand, took up the corn mother that had lain beside the child and passed it over the child four times from the navel upward to the head. On the first pass, she named the child. On the second, she wished the child a long life, on the third, a healthy life. If the child was a boy, she wished him a productive life in his work on the fourth pass, if a girl, that she would become a good wife and mother. Each of the aunts in turn did likewise, giving the child a clan name from the clan of either the mother or father of the aunt. The child was then given back to his mother. The yellow light by then was showing in the east. The mother holding the child in her left arm and the corn mother in her right hand and accompanied by her own mother, the child's grandmother, left the house and walked toward the east. Then they stopped, facing east and prayed silently, casting pinches of cornmeal toward the rising sun. When the sun cleared the horizon, the mother stepped forward, held up the child to the sun, and said, Father, son, this is your child. 
Again, she said this, passing the corn mother over the child's body as when she had named him, wishing for him to grow so old he would have to lean on a crook for support, thus proving that he had obeyed the Creator's laws. The grandmother did the same thing when the mother had finished, then both marked a cornmeal path toward the sun for this new life. The child now belonged to his family and the earth. Mother and grandmother carried him back to the house where his aunts were waiting. The village crier announced his birth and a feast was held in his honor. <clears throat> For several years, the child was called by different names that were given him. The one that seemed most predominant became his name and the aunt who gave it to him became his godmother. The corn mother remained his spiritual mother. For seven or eight years, he led the normal earthly life of a child. Then came his first initiation into a religious society. And he began to learn that although he had human parents, his real parents were the universal entities who had created him through them. His mother earth, from whose flesh all are born, and his father son, the solar god, who gives life to all the universe. He began to learn in brief that he too had two aspects. He was a member of an earthly family and tribal clan, and he was a citizen of the great universe to which he owed a growing allegiance as his understanding developed. The first people then understood the mystery of their parenthood. In their pristine wisdom, they also understood their own structure and functions the nature of man himself. The living body of a man and the living body of the earth were constructed in the same way. Through each ran an axis, man's axis being the backbone, the vertebral column, which controlled the equilibrium of his movements and his functions. Along this axis were several vibratory centers, which echoed the primordial sound of life throughout the universe or sounded a warning if anything went wrong. The first of these in man lay at the top of the head. Here when he was born was the soft spot, Kopavi, the open door, through which he received his life and communicated with his creator. For with every breath the soft spot moved up and down with a gentle vibration that was communicated to the creator. At the time of the red light, Talava, the last phase of his creation, the soft spot was hardened and the door was closed. It remained closed until his death, opening then for his life to depart as it had come. Just below it lay the second center, the organ that man learned to think with by himself, the thinking organ called the brain. Its early function enabled man to think about his actions and work on this earth. But the more he understood that his work and actions should conform to the plan of the Creator, the more clearly he understood that the real function of the thinking organ called the brain was carrying out the plan of all creation. The third center lay in the throat. It tied together those openings in his nose and mouth through which he received the breath of life 
and the vibratory organs that enabled him to give back his breath in sound. This primordial sound as that coming from the vibratory centers of the body of the earth was attuned to the universal vibration of all creation. New and diverse sounds were given forth by these vocal organs in the forms of speech and song. Their secondary function for man on this earth, <clears throat> song was the secondary function for man on this earth, but as he came to understand its primary function, he used this center to speak and sing praises to the creator. The fourth center was the heart. It too was a vibrating organ pulsing with the vibration of life itself. In his heart, man felt the good of life, its sincere purpose. He was of one heart, but there were those who permitted evil feelings to enter. They were said to be two hearts. The last of man's important centers lay under his navel. The organ that some people now call the solar plexus. As this name signifies, it was the throne in man of the creator himself. From it, he directed all the functions of man. Frank Waters included a footnote here saying that Tibetan and Hindu mysticisms like Hopi mysticism postulate a similar series of centers of force or psychological centers in the human body in which psychic forces and bodily functions merge into each other. These chakras are, are described and they coincide with those of the Hopis. They correspond roughly with the physical centers, but they function psychically rather than solely physiologically. The highest and most important center described by Eastern mysticism lies like that of the Hopi at the crown of the head, known as the Sahastra Padma, the thousand-petaled lotus. It is associated with the pituitary gland of the brain. It is also so important as a seat of psychic consciousness that it is regarded as a higher order than the other centers. As in the Hopi belief, it is the door to the creator through which consciousness enters and leaves. Below it, centered between the eyebrows, lies the Ajna Chakra, which corresponds to the medulla oblongata of modern physiology, forming the basis of the brain and controlling the sympathetic nervous system. The Visuddha Chakra is the throat center. It corresponds to the physical plexus cervicus of the cerebrospinal system and is associated with the respiratory system. Below these higher centers lie two more centers which are also identical with those of Hopi mysticism. The first of these is the heart center, the Anatata chakra, corresponding to the heart plexus of the sympathicus, which controls the heart and blood vessels. Below this lies the Manipura chakra, the navel lotus, and the Hopi throne of the creator, which correspond to the solar plexus of the sympathetic system, controlling the conversion of inorganic into organic substances 
and the transmutation of organic substances into psychic energies. Eastern mysticism describes two more centers below these which are not included in the Hopi series. The Moladhar Chakra, the root center at the base of the spinal column, corresponding to the sacral plexus and the plexus pelvis, which stand for the whole realm of reproductive forces. The negative function of rejection and elimination of elements that cannot be assimilated are associated with the Svadhisthana Chakra, lying just above it and corresponding to the plexus epigastricus. These two centers are often combined into one. These seven centers are always enumerated in an ascending order to that at the crown of the head as they become successfully less gross in nature and function. The four lower centers should be noted represent successfully the four gross elements that comprise man's body, earth, water, fire, and air. According to the Hopi belief, the body of the earth and the body of the man were both constructed of these same gross elements in this same order. It may be briefly stated here that both Eastern and Hopi mysticism equate the bodies of men and the earth and the centers with men with the seven universes. This came from a source of Tibetan series translated by W.Y. Evans Wentz in London back in... <clears throat> Apparently the guy lived between 1927 or 19, and 1957, or maybe that's when he did the translation. I don't know. W.Y. Evans Wentz. The serpent power translated from Sanskrit by Sir John Woodruff, and Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism by Lama Angirika Govinda in 1960. The first of the Hopi people, the first of all people, knew no sickness. Not until evil entered the world did persons get sick in the body or the head. It was then that a medicine man, knowing how man was constructed, could tell what was wrong with the person by examining these centers. First, he laid his hands on them at the top of the head, above the eyes, the throat, the chest, the belly. The hands of the medicine man were seer instruments. They could feel the vibrations from each center and tell him in which life ran strongest or weakest. Sometimes the trouble was just a bellyache from uncooked food or a cold in the head. But other times it came from outside, drawn by the person's own evil thoughts, or from those of a two hearts. In this case, the medicine man took out from his medicine pouch a small crystal about an inch and a half across, held it in the sun to get it in good working order, and then looked through it at each of the centers. In this manner, he could see what caused the trouble and often the very face of the two hearts person who had caused the illness. There was nothing magical about the crystal. Medicine men always said an ordinary person could see nothing when he looked through it. The crystal merely objectified the vision of the center which controlled his eyes and which the medicine man had developed for this very purpose. Thus the first people understood themselves, and this was the first world they lived upon. Its name was Tocapella, Endless Space. Its direction was west. Its color 
Sikyang pool, yellow. Its mineral, Sikyasu, gold. Significant upon it were Kadakya, the snake with a big head, Wisoko, the fat eating bird, and Muha, the little four leafed plant. On it, the first people were pure and happy. Two, Tokpa, the second world. So the first people kept multiplying and spreading over the face of the land and were happy. Although they were of different colors and spoke different languages, they felt as one and understood one another without talking. It was the same with the birds and the animals. They all suckled at the breast of their mother earth, who gave them her milk of grass, seeds, fruit, and corn. And they all felt as one, people and animals. But gradually there were those who forgot the commands of Sotuknyang and the spider woman to respect their creator. More and more they used the vibratory centers of their bodies solely for earthly purposes forgetting that their primary purpose was to carry out the plan of creation. There then came among them Lavai Hoya, the talker. He came in the form of a bird called Mokni. He's a bird like the mockingbird. And the more he kept talking, the more he convinced them of the difference between them, the difference between people and animals and the difference between the people themselves by reason of the colors of their skin, their speech, and belief in the plan of the Creator. It was then that animals drew away from people. The guardian spirit of animals laid his hands on their hind legs just below the tail, making them become wild and scatter from the people in fear. You can see this slightly oily spot today on deer and antelope on the sides of their back legs as they throw up their tails to run away. In the same way, people began to divide and draw away from one another, those of different races and languages, then those who remembered the plan of creation and those who did not. There came among them a handsome one, Keroya, in the form of a snake with a big head. He led the people still farther away from one another in their pristine wisdom. They became suspicious of one another and accused one another wrongfully until they became fierce and warlike and began to fight one another. All the time Mokni kept talking and Kato Yah became more beguiling. There was no rest, no peace. But among all the people of different races and languages, there were a few in every group who still lived by the laws of creation. To them came Sotukyang. He came with the sound as of a mighty wind and suddenly appeared before them. He said, I have observed this state of affairs. It's not good. It is so bad. I've talked to my uncle Taiwa about it. We've decided this world must be destroyed and another one created so you people can start over again. You are the ones we have chosen. They listened carefully to their instructions. Said Sotuk Yang, you will go to a certain place. Your Kopavi, the vibratory center on the top of your head, 
will lead you. This inner wisdom will give you the sight to see a certain cloud which you will follow by day and a certain star which you will follow by night. Take nothing with you. Your journey will not end until the cloud stops and the star stops. So all over the world, these chosen people suddenly appeared from their homes and people began the following day to follow the cloud by day and the star by night. Many other people asked them where they were going and when they were told, laughed at them, we don't see any cloud or any star either, they said. This was because they had lost the inner vision of the kopavi on the crown of their head. The door was closed to them. Still, there were very few who went along anyway because they believed the people who did see the cloud and the star. This was all right. After many days and nights, the first people arrived at the certain place. Soon others came and asked, what are you doing here? And they said, we were told by Sotuk Nyang to come here. The other people said, we too were led here by the vapor and the stars. They were all happy together because they were in the same mind and understanding, even though they were of different races and languages. When the last ones arrived, Tsuk Nyang appeared. Well, you are all here, you people I have chosen to save from the destruction of this world. Now come with me. He led them to a big mound where the ant people lived, stamped on the roof and commanded the ant people to open up their home. When an opening was made on top of the anthill, Sotuk Nyang said to the people, Now you will enter this ant kiva, where you will be safe when I destroy the world. While you are here, I want you to learn a lesson from these ant people. They are industrious. They gather food in the summer for the winter. They keep cool when it is hot and warm when it is cool. They live peaceably one with another. They obey the plan of creation. So the people went down to live with the ant people. When they were all safe and settled, Taiwa commanded Sotuk Nyang to destroy the world. <coughs> Sotuk Nyang destroyed it, destroyed it by fire because the fire clan had been its leaders. He rained fire upon it. He opened up the volcanoes. Fire came from above and below and all around until the earth, the waters, the airs, all was one element, fire. And there was nothing left except the people safe inside the womb of the earth. This was the end of Tokpela, the first world. Emergence to the second world. While this was going on, the people lived happily underground with the ant people. Their homes were just like the people's homes, the earth surface, the, on the earth surface being destroyed. There were rooms to live in and rooms where they stored their food. There was light to see by too. The tiny bits of crystal in the sand of the anthill had absorbed the light from the sun. And by using the inner vision of the center behind their eyes, they could see by its reflection very well. Only one thing troubled them. The food began to run short. It had not taken Sotuk Nyang long to destroy the world, nor would it take him long to create another one. But it was taking a long time for the first world to cool off before the second world could be created. That was why the food was running short.
Do not give us so much of the food you have worked so hard to gather in store, the people said. Yes, you are our guests, the ant people told them. What we have is yours also. So the ant people continued to deprive themselves of food in order to supply their guests. Every day they tied their belts tighter and tighter. That is why ants today are so small around the waist. Finally, that which had been the first world cooled off. So took Nang purified it. Then he began to create the second world. He changed its form completely, putting land where the water was and water where the land had been, so the people upon their emergence would have nothing to remind them of the previous wicked world. When all was ready, he came to the roof of the ant kiva, stamped on it and gave his call. Immediately, the chief of the ant people went up to the opening and rolled back the nuta. Young Ai, come in. You are welcome, he called. The nuta is the straw thatch over the latter opening of modern Hopi kivas. It is the ritual proceed, procedure followed when a kachina enters a kiva. Young Ai, come in. You are welcome. So Tuknang spoke first to the ant people. I am thanking you for doing your part in helping to save these people. It will always be remembered this you have done. The time will come when another world will be destroyed. And when wicked people know their last day on earth has come, they will sit by an anthill and cry for the ants to save them. Now, having fulfilled your duty, you may go forth to this second world I have created and take your place as ants. Then Sotuk Nang said to the people, Make your emergence now to this second world I have created. It is not quite so beautiful as the first world, but it is beautiful just the same. You'll like it. So multiply and be happy. But remember your creator and the laws he gave you. When I hear you singing joyful praises to him, I will know that you are my children and you will be close to me in your hearts. So the people emerged to the second world. Its name was Tokpa, dark midnight. Its direction was south, its color blue. Its mineral, Kokchasiva, silver. Chiefs upon it, were Salavi, the
Kuskurza, the third world. Its name was Kuskurza, its direction east, its color red. Chiefs upon it were the mineral palasiva, which is copper, the plant piva, tobacco, the bird angusi, the crow, and the animal choovio, the antelope. Upon it once more the people spread out, multiplied, and continued their progress on the road of life. In the first world, they had lived simply with the animals. In the second world, they had developed handicrafts, homes, and villages. Now in the third world, they multiplied in such numbers and advanced so rapidly that they created big cities, countries, a whole civilization. This made it difficult for them to conform to the plan of creation and to sing praises to Taiwa, the Sotuknyang. More and more of them became wholly occupied with their own earthly plans. Some of them, of course, retained the wisdom granted them upon their emergence. With this wisdom, they understood that the farther they proceeded on the road of life, and the more they developed, the harder it was. That was why their world was destroyed every so often to give them a fresh start. They were especially concerned because so many people were using their reproductive power in wicked ways. There was one woman who was becoming known throughout the world for her wickedness in corrupting so many people. She even boasted that so many men were giving her turquoise necklaces for her favors that she could wind them around a ladder that reached to the end of the world's axis. So the people with wisdom sang louder and longer their praises to the Creator from the tops of their hills. The other people hardly heard them. Under the leadership of the Bow Clan, they began to use their creative power in another evil and destructive way. Perhaps this was caused by that wicked woman. But some of them made a patu vota, a shield made of hide, and with their creative power made it fly through the air. On this, many of the people flew to a big city, attacked it, and returned so fast, no one knew where they came from. Soon the people of many cities and countries were making patu votas and flying them to attack one another. So corruption and war came to the third world as it had to the others. This time Sotuk Nyang came to Spider Woman and said, there's no use waiting until the thread runs out this time. Something has to be done lest the people with the song in their hearts are corrupted and killed off too. It'll be difficult, with all this destruction going on, for them to gather at the far end of the world I have designated. But I'll help them. Then you will save them when I destroy this world with water. Whoa, how shall I save them? asked Spider-Woman. <clears throat> when you get there, look about you, commanded Satung Yang, and you will see these tall plants with hollow stems. Cut them down and put the people inside, and then I'll tell you what to do next. Spider Woman did as he instructed her. He cut down the, she cut down the hollow reeds, and as the people came to her, she put them inside with a little water and a little white cornmeal dough for food, and sealed them up. And when all the people were thus taken care of, Sotuk Nyang appeared. Now, you get in to take care of them, and I will seal you up, he said. 
then I will destroy the world. So he loosed the waters upon the earth. Waves higher than the mountains rolled in upon the land. Continents broke asunder and sank beneath the seas. Still the rains fell and the waves rolled in. The people sealed up in their hollow reeds heard the mighty rushing of the waters. They felt themselves tossed high in the air and dropping back to the water. Then all was quiet and they knew that they were floating for a long, long time. So long a time that it seemed it would never end. They kept floating. Finally, their movement ceased. The spider woman unsealed their hollow reeds, took them out by the tops of their heads, and pulled them out. Bring out all the food that's left over, she commanded. And the people brought out all of their cornmeal. And it was still the same size as though they had been, even though they had been eating it all this time. Looking about them, they saw that they were on a little piece of land that had been the top of one of their highest mountains. All else, as far as they could see, was water. This was all that remained of the third world. There must be some dry land somewhere we can go, they said. Where is the new fourth world that Sotuknyang has created for us? They sent many kinds of birds, one after another, to fly over the waters and find it, but they all came back tired out without having seen any sign of land. Next, they planted a reed that grew high into the sky. Up it they climbed and stared over the surface of the waters, but they saw no sign of land. Then Sotuknyang appeared to Spider Woman and said, You must continue traveling on. Your inner wisdom will guide you. The door at the top of your head is open. So Spider Woman directed the people to make round flat boats of the hollow reeds they had come in and to crawl inside. <clears throat> Again, they entrusted themselves to the water and the inner wisdom to guide them. For a long time, they drifted with the wind and the movement of the waters and came to another rocky island. It's bigger than the other one, but it's not big enough, they said. Looking around them and thinking, they heard a low rumbling noise. Nope. Not big enough, said Spider Woman. So the people kept traveling toward the rising sun in their reed boats. After a while, they said, There's that low rumbling noise we heard. We must be coming to land again. So it was. A big land, it seemed, with grass and trees and flowers, beautiful to their weary eyes. On it they rested a long time. Some of the people wanted to stay, but Spider Woman said no. This is not the place. You must carry on. Leaving their boats, they traveled by foot eastward across the island to the water's edge. There they found growing some more of the hollow plants like reeds or bamboo, which they cut down. Directed by Spider Woman, they laid some of these in a row and another row on top of them in the opposite direction and tied them all together with vines and leaves. This made a raft big enough for one family or more. When enough rafts were made for all, Spider Woman directed them to make paddles. You will be going uphill from now on, and you will have to make your own way. So, Sotuk Nyang told you, the farther you go, the harder it gets. <clears throat> After long and weary traveling, still east and a little north, the people began to hear the low rumbling noise and saw land. One family and clan after another landed with joy. The land was long, wide, and beautiful. The earth was rich and flat. 
covered with trees and plants, seed bearers and nut bearers providing lots of food. The people were happy and kept staying there year after year. No, this is not the fourth world, Spider Woman kept telling them. It's too easy and pleasant for you to live on. You would soon fall into evil ways again. You must go on. Have we not told you the way becomes harder and longer? Reluctantly, the people traveled eastward by foot across the island to the far shore. Again, they made rafts and paddles. When they were ready to set forth, Spider Woman said, Now I have done all I am commanded to do for you. You must go on alone and find your own place of emergence. Just keep your doors open and your spirits will guide you. Thank you, Spider Woman, for all you have done for us, they said. We will remember what you have said. Alone they set out, traveling east and a little north, paddling hard day and night for many days, as if they were paddling uphill. At last they saw land. It rose high above the waters, stretching from north to south as though they could see, as far as they could see. A great land, a mighty land, their inner wisdom told them. The fourth world, they cried to each other. As they got closer, its shores rose higher and higher into a steep wall of mountains. There seemed no place to land. Let's go north. There we will find our place of emergence, some said. So they went north, but the mountains rose higher and steeper. No, let's go south. There we will find our place of emergence, cried others. So they turned and traveled many days more, but here too the mountain wall reared higher. Not knowing what to do, the people stopped paddling, opened the doors on the top of their heads, and let themselves be guided. Almost immediately, the water smoothed out, and they felt their rafts caught up in a gentle current. Before long, they landed and joyfully jumped out upon a sandy shore. The fourth world, they cried. We have reached our place of emergence at last. Soon all the others arrived, and when they were gathered together, Sotuk Nyang appeared before them. Well, I see you are all here. That's good. This is the place I've prepared for you. Look now at the way you have come. Looking to the west and to the south, the people could see sticking out of the water the islands upon which they had rested. They are the footprints of your journey, continued Sotuk Nyang the tops of the high mountains of the third world, which I destroyed. Now watch. As the people watched them, the closest ones sank under the water, then the next, until all were gone and they could see only water. See, said Sotuk Nyang, I have washed away even the footprints of your emergence, the stepping stones which I left for you, down on the bottom of the seas lie all the proud cities, the flying patuotos, and the worldly treasures corrupted with evil, and those people who found no time to sing praises to the Creator from the tops of their hills. But the day will come if you preserve the memory and the meaning of your emergence, when these stepping stones will emerge again to prove the truth you speak. This at last was the end of the third world. Kuskurza, an ancient name for which there is no modern meaning. Tuwakachi, the fourth world. 
I have something more to say before I leave you, Sotuknang told the people as they stood at their place of emergence on the shore of the present fourth world. This is what he said. The name of this fourth world is Tuwakachi, world complete. You will find out why. It is not all beautiful and easy like the previous ones. It has height and depth, heat and cold, beauty and barrenness. It has everything for you to choose from. What you choose will determine if this time you can carry out the plan of creation on it or whether it must in time be destroyed too. Now you will separate and go different ways to claim all the earth for the creator. Each group of you will follow your own star until it stops. There you will settle. Now I must go, but you will have help from the proper deities, from your good spirits. Just keep your own doors open and always remember what I have told you. This is what I say. Then he disappeared. The people, people began to move slowly off the shore and into the land. When they heard the low rumbling noise again, looking around, they saw a handsome man and asked, Are you the one who has been making these noises we have heard? Yes, I made them to help you find the way here. Do you not recognize me? My name is Masa. I am the caretaker, the guardian and protector of this land. The people recognized Masa. He had been appointed head caretaker of the third world, but becoming a little self-important, he had lost his humility before the creator. Being a spirit, he could not die, so Taiwa took his appointment away from him and made him the deity of death and the underworld. This job below was not as pleasant as the one above. Then when the third world was destroyed, Taiwa decided to give him another chance as he had the people, and appointed him to guard and protect this fourth world as its creator. He was the first being the people had met here, and they were very respectful to him. Will you give us your permission to live on this land, they asked? Yes, I'll give you my permission as owner of the land. Will you be our leader, the people then asked? No, replied Masa. A greater one than I has given you a plan to fulfill first. When that previous parts of the world were pushed underneath the water, this new land was pushed up in the middle to become the backbone of the earth. You are now standing on its atvila, its west side slope. But you have not made your migrations. You have not followed, not followed your stars to the place where you will meet and settle. This you must do before I can become your leader. But if you go back to evil ways again, I will take over the earth from you. For I am its caretaker, guardian, and protector. To the north you will find cold and ice. That is the back door to this land. And those who may come through this back door will enter without my consent. So go now and claim the land with my permission. When Masa appeared, the people divided into groups and clans to begin their migrations. 
May we meet again, they all called back to one another. This is how it all began on this present fourth world, as we know. Its name is Tuwakachi, world complete. Its direction north, its color sick young poo, yellowish white. Chiefs upon it are the tree, Knipapi, the juniper, the bird, Mangual, the owl, the owl, <clears throat> the animal, Tohopko, the mountain lion, and the mixed mineral, Sikyapala, where all the people went on their migrations to the ends of the earth and back and what they have done to carry out the plan of the creation from this place of beginning to the present time is to be told next by all the clans as they came in. Chapter 5 is a commentary, the symbol of the emergence. The whole myth and meaning of the emergence is expressed by one symbol known to the Hopis as the Mother Earth symbol. There are two forms, the square and the circular. And both of these look like a, a simple maze that you might have found in a coloring book as a child where you would trace a line without crossing a line. You'd enter at one place and come out at another place. So there are two of these in the Hopi culture, and both of them have an entrance from the left-hand side as you're looking at it you know, on a normal page, as if they were entering from the east, moving toward the west. There are one circular and five square symbols ranging from four to six inches in diameter carved on a rock just south of Orabi and one circular form about nine inches in diameter carved on a rock south of Shiplovi. A combination of the two forms is also carved on a wooden stick which is planted in front of the one horn altar in the Kwana Kiva at Walpi during the Wuwu Wu Wu Shim ceremony. Wu Wu Shim. That name sounds familiar, like there might be a another culture that has that name in their spiritual lexicon. The symbol is commonly known as Tapuat, mother and child. The square type represents spiritual rebirth from one world to the succeeding one as symbolized by the emergence itself. In this drawing, the straight line emerges from the entrance. It's not connected with the maze. Its two ends symbolize the two stages of life. The unborn child within the womb of Mother Earth and the child after it is born. The line symbolizing the umbilical cord and the path of emergence. Turning the drawing so that the line stands vertical at the top of the page, you will see that the lower end is embraced by the U-shaped arm of the maze. The inside lines represent the fetal membranes which enfold the child within the womb. And the outside lines are the mother's arms, which hold it later. 
The circular type differs slightly in design and meaning. The center line at this entrance is directed, directly connected with the maze and the center of the cross it forms symbolizes the Sun Father, the giver of life. Within the maze, lines at four points, lines end at four points. All the lines and passages <clears throat> the circular type differs slightly in design and meaning. The center line at the entrance is directly connected with the maze and the center of the cross it forms symbolizes the Sun Father, the giver of life. Within the maze, lines end at four points. All the lines and passages within the maze form the universal plan of the creator, which man must follow on his road of life. And the four points represent the cardinal or directional points embraced within this universal plan of life. Double security or rebirth to one who follows the plan is guaranteed as shown by the same enfoldment of the child by the mother. The additional meaning of this circular type that this circular type offers is that it also symbolizes the concentric boundaries of the land traditionally claimed by the Hopis who have secret shrines planted along them. During Wuwuchim and other ceremonies, the priests make four circuits around the village to reclaim this earth ceremonially in accordance with the universal plan. A structural parallel to this mother and child symbol is the Kiva, itself the mother earth, the Siddhapuni, the small hole in the floor represents the womb, the place of emergence from the preceding world, and the ladder leading out through the root for another emergence to the succeeding world. The ladder leads out through the roof, not the root. And that's an emergence into the succeeding world, the next bubble. And that's the ladder is the umbilical cord. Okay, angels going up and down upon that ladder out of the kiva. Enactment of the emergence is given during Wuwuchim, when the initiates undergo spiritual rebirth. The symbol is said to have substantially the same meaning to other Indian tribes in North, Central, and South America. The Pimas call it the house of Tiuhu, Tiuhu being the gopher who bored the spiral hole up to the surface of the earth for the emergence, thus being the spirit of the placenta. The Kuna in Panama assert that the cross in it is the tree of life, the umbilical cord and fetal membranes of the earth mother when she gave birth to her children. It's as if this maze is the afterbirth. This maze we find ourselves in, or if you have been unmazed, 
by amazing grace. I'm reading Fred Waters' book. I shouldn't comment too much, but it's my reading of Fred Waters' book that makes it my reading of Fred Waters' book. So I'm going to say what I say, and if you want to read along, you can get the book. It's still in libraries. So the point here that this symbol, this maze symbol, the circular form of this maze symbol seems common throughout this culture that seems to have sprung up from northern South America or Central America or southern Mexico much more likely than it came across the Bering Land Bridge, which was a land bridge when, you know, the wall of ice reached all the way down into Montana. Back to Frank. It's curious that the symbol has been long known throughout the world, being identical with the diagram of the labyrinth of Daedalus, which appeared on early Cretan coins. And there's a footnote regarding that, but I'm going to skip footnotes for a while because uh, if you were really prompted to do a, a study of the Hopi because you heard me read this book, you'd be better off if you get the book and follow the footnotes yourself because they will lead you on amazing trails, like going back to find those Cretan coins that have this maze on them will lead you to a lot of things. There's even a place in the Bible where it says the Cretans are always slow bellies, which witness is true. And I always wondered, what what is this idea of being a, a slow belly? Well, we'll see if that comes up here in the Hopi culture because they have, they have some really unique archetypes that uh, so far in my listening to all the different kinds of psychologists that have sprouted on the earth since the 1800s, I find that uh, these Hopi archetypes and the archetypes that I find in the New Testament and the Old Testament stand as realer than the kind of Xerox copies of the basic idea that exist all around. And I can go back and edit stuff if I want to. The labyrinth was said to have been built by Daedalus in Crete to hide the Minotaur, the result of the unnatural union of Queen Pasiphae with a sacrificial bull. The Egyptian ancestors of this Cretan labyrinth 
especially the Osirion of Min, were water labyrinths entered by boat and serving as burial places. Hence, they were essentially maps of the wandering of the soul in the afterlife until it found rest and rebirth at the tree of life in the center. And this religious meaning has adhered to the symbol during its spread throughout the world. Although the basic meaning of the Hopi creation myth and the symbol which expresses it is subjective, we cannot ignore the literal interpretation that the Hopis came to America from the West, crossing the sea on boats or rafts from one stepping stone or island to the next. A similar interpretation can be made of the myth of the ancient Quiche Maya, which relates that the waters parted and the tribes crossed on stepping stones placed in a row over the sand, stones in a row, sand under the sea. Popul Vuh, the sacred book of the ancient Quishimaya. That's at the University of Oklahoma Press. The Hopis, with this sacred tradition, knock on the head the popular anthropological belief that the Hopi Sipapuni, or place of emergence, was Grand Canyon, 90 miles west of Orabi. The Hopis simply used the Colorado River as a symbol for the water to the west and the precipitous wall of the Grand Canyon to symbolize the mountainous wall extending throughout the fourth wall world of America. The tradition also refutes the popular theory that the Hopis, like all Indians, immigrated from Asia to America by the Bering Strait land bridge. Yet it gives no clue to the many rational questions long asked. From what ancient race or world mankind, from what ancient race of world mankind, from what branch of Adam kind did the Hopis spring? What and where was the now submerged third world of the Hopis? When did they immigrate to America? Since the time of Plato, there has persisted a belief in the antediluvian existence of such continents during past geological periods. Certainly the land masses on this planet have not always held the same shape and location. Data obtained during the International Geophysical Year, that was 1957, tend to prove that other continents did exist. Scientific credence is now given to the theory proposed by Alfred Wegener, a German geologist, that our present continents have broken away from greater land masses and are slowly drifting to ever new positions on the face of the earth. Their movements are caused by convection currents set in motion by radioactivity in the center of the earth, making the earth a great gyroscope forever spinning 
at a fixed angle. This is a modern restatement of the Hopi view in which Pokenghoya and Pelonghoya, Pelongahoya, personalize opposite polarities of the great magnetic circuit, which keeps the earth rotating and the land masses of its upper crust shifting. We now know that with continental drifts, there are different directions at different times of north, magnetic north having once been in the middle of the Pacific and then in the southwest of the United States. The Hopi creation myth parallels this finding in its assertion that the polar center of the earth shifted from the now vanished third world to the Hopi homeland on this present fourth world. Zoological and botanical evidence supports the geological with many examples of animals and plant life that were brought, as the Hopi creation myth asserts, from the previous world. Whether or not the Hopi creation myth is regarded as a record of prehistoric events, there is no question of the value of its esoteric mysticism it reveals. Despite its superficial simplicity, man is created perfect in the image of his creator. Then, after closing the door, falling from grace, into the uninhibited expression of his own human will, he begins his slow climb back upward. Within him are several psychophysical centers. At each successive stage of his evolution, one of these comes into predominant play. Also for each stage, there is created a world body in the same order of development as his own body. For him to become manifest upon. For each stage there is created a world body in the same order of development as his own body. For him to become manifest upon. When each successive period of development concludes with catastrophic catastrophic destruction to world and mankind. He passes on to the next. The four lower centers as they successfully descend in man decrease in purity of consciousness and increase in grossness of physical function. In the fourth stage of development, he reaches the lowest and midpoint of his journey. The fourth world, the present one, is the full expression of man's ruthless materialism and imperialistic will, and man himself reflects the overriding gross appetites of the flesh. With this turn, man rises upward, bringing into predominant function each of the higher centers. The door at the crown of the head then opens and he merges into the wholeness of all creation whence he sprang. It is the road of life he has traveled by his own free will, exhausting every capacity for good or evil, that he may know himself at last as a finite part of infinity. How appallingly simple it seems 
in this Hopi creation myth. Only its closest parallel, the tantric teachings of the Tibetan and Hindu mysticism, reveal in meticulous detail the profundity of its premise. A specific footnote in this narrative, as specific footnotes in this narrative suggest, they elucidate the function of man's centers and describe in full the stages of mankind's development. Quite obviously, we of the West view the psychical achievements of the East with a suspicious alarm comparable to that with which the East views our hydrogen bombs, interceptor missiles, and space rockets. He doesn't mention cell phones and computers. He wrote this in 1963. Mysticism has its own dangers from which the Hopis themselves have suffered acutely, as we shall see. And pragmatic Western, Western science has bestowed immeasurable blessings upon all mankind. It is merely a matter of choosing different goals and the means of achieving them. It is merely a matter of choosing different goals and the means of achieving them. The contrast of the two systems is mentioned here because this pathetically small and misunderstood minority group, the Hopis, are so strangely attuned to the precepts of another hemisphere rather than to the technological civilization engulfing them. From the same mysticism, the people of the Far East have created an empirical science, the Hopis, a cosmic drama. The whole multi-world universe is its stage. The cataclysmic epochs of geological change provide the props, and its characters are the Hopis themselves, masked as all the races of mankind. This alone recommends our earnest attention, for seldom has any caste attempted to play simultaneously two different roles. That of the cosmic spirit of mankind and that of temporal, mortal man. The characters have now emerged to the vast continental stage of this new, this new fourth world. So let us follow their wandering migrations. And the book goes on. And this is my reading of the book. This is not the book. This is me reading this aloud to myself so that I can filter out the ideas that I have about this book from 1970 when I first bought it and first delved into it and first tasted of the fact that I had grown up in the world these people thought was the center of the world. You know, my environs 
and my environs were as influential on me as James Joyce's environs were on him. And that a seemingly so scatterbrained individual as myself can late in life have a near insanity opportunity and recover from that to the point of a clarity of focus and a clarity of mind that I've never acknowledged in my 70 years. So I've just read the first um, part of Frank Waters' Book of the Hopi. And if you could please comment, I would be encouraged to read the rest of it. And maybe I would read it better if you suggest to me things that I did wrong that I should do in a different way. Thanks for listening.